There's no doubt that Alfred Hitchcock is one of the most influential directors of all time. Not only has he become a legend within the film community, but his reach extends into popular culture as well. Despite his extensive film credits, he's perhaps best known for the unforgettable films he released during the mid-century, including Vertigo, North by Northwest, The Birds, and of course, Psycho. Each one praised for their uniquely macabre plots and story twists. In 1962, renowned French film director and critic Francois Truffaut conducted an extensive interview with Hitchcock and published his collected conversations as a book entitled Hitchcock Truffaut. The book spans Hitchcock's entire career with Hitch and Truffaut critiquing each of his films and picking apart the production from his beginnings in England to his then current career in the United States. In the book, Truffaut recounts a time in the late 1960s when Hitchcock wrote him a letter about a new film project he was interested in and included notes on the story. The film would be about a necrophiliac murderer who runs loose in London until one day a trap is set to finally capture him once and for all. The story would be told from the perspective of the murderer who, as described by Hitchcock, was to be exceptionally attractive. Inspired by the French New Wave, a cinematic style that he inadvertently helped create, Hitchcock planned a film that would be a radical departure from what audiences had come to expect from the highly imaginative director. The film eventually became known as Kaleidoscope. There were many other films that Hitchcock attempted but never produced, however, Kaleidoscope seemed to be of some importance to him, so much in fact that he made arrangements with Robert Bloch, author of the novel Psycho, to turn Hitchcock's story treatment into a novel. Bloch's novel Psycho actually served as the basis for Hitchcock's film with the same name. So why is Kaleidoscope so important to Hitchcock's story? Well, in order to solve this mystery, we have to understand Hitchcock a little better. And to accomplish that, we'll need an expert. So joining me on today's episode, we have Christopher Lamont, independent filmmaker, writer, director, and producer. In addition to that, he's been teaching at the Arizona State University School of Film, Dance, and Theater for the past 12 years. He's also one of the founders of the Phoenix Film Festival, which is now in its 15th year. Mr. Lamont, you teach an excellent course on Alfred Hitchcock at ASU, making you, in my opinion, the foremost expert on the subject. But can you please tell us a little more about your first experience with Hitchcock's films? Well, unfortunately for me, my first experience with Alfred Hitchcock was uh, seeing Family Plot on TV. Family Plot being the last of the films that uh, Hitchcock did. And uh, I specifically remember the chase scene in the uh, cemetery where the cars are going around, the cars, it's the big car chase scene. And I was just struck by that. That seemed very interesting to me. I, I was fairly young at the time. And, uh, but I said, oh, that's interesting. And the way it was shot, it seemed different than some of the other movies that I had seen before. Uh, and, you know, that was my first experience with Hitchcock. And then, of course, as I grew older, uh, I began to see, you know, little pieces here and there and hope and understanding who he is. And actually, uh, my first really, truly uh, experience with Hitchcock was when I was in, uh, young and there is a 
mystery series of books that he did. Uh, he there was good Alfred Hitchcock Murder Magazine, uh, and uh, so they collected uh, short stories that not that he didn't write, but he sort of edited. And of those, there was a book series for young adults. Now it's, I guess, similar to the uh, uh, the Twilight series, except without girls, because <laughs> it was focused on focused on three teenage boys who uh, started their own club, and they were called the Three Investigators. And Alfred Hitchcock actually did introductions to each of the books. And as himself, and so like they always went and visited Hitchcock at his the studio for uh, insight about whatever mystery they were working on. So it was always when I saw in the library, and I'm seeing this name Alfred Hitchcock over and over again. And the books were books were interesting. You can still get the books here. And as I I found during my research, apparently the three investigators are very popular in Germany. Oh wow! <laughs> there's there's they've done like I think like two or three features following the three investigators on oh. different uh, different stories yeah so i've always been curious to to see if i could uh, get those but i don't think they're even in english subtitles oh, because wow. they're german movies <laughs> yeah i was gonna say that'd be interesting to watch but it, it sounds like if uh if you found them you know just now that they're not really that easy to come by yeah and they don't seem very good either but apparently <laughs> the germans love them yeah i um and that's interesting because uh like you said how your first uh, experience was family plot and that's like you said his, his last american movie or his last movie in, in, at all and um mine was uh psycho i uh, my mom would always say that psycho was one of the scariest movies she'd ever seen and of course when we were kids we weren't allowed to watch anything like that but uh, when she was describing <laughs> it uh, she would describe it as more of like uh, she was more excited than scared by it so that that was kind of odd to me um so i was of course never allowed to watch it but when I did finally see it, um, I really enjoyed it, of course, and, and for that, it kind of holds a special place in, in, in my heart. But um, a few years ago, actually, my fiance and I watched it at, it was playing at the Harkins Valley Art Theater. and Right, I remember. Yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun, and there was actually um, there was actually a gentleman there that brought what looked to be his daughter, because she had to be around 10 years old, and they're watching the movie, and as soon as the shower scene comes up, she lets out the the loudest scream i've ever heard in a movie theater and wow. she, she completely covers her eyes and starts screaming and when that happened the whole audience jumped with her and i thought that was just kind of cool that you know something almost what 50 years ago more than 50 years ago has still has that same power and and i don't know it just brought a big smile to my face and i just really enjoyed that that moment to see that hitchcock's movies are still as effective as they then as they are now Right, right. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, that's one of the great things about when I started the class at ASU is that you can't do a lot of filmmakers and look at that, their entire filmography and be able to get movies that still affect and engage uh, people, audience members. Uh, but his, you know, he had such a robust career and all these films that he did, I mean, these are classic movies that we show in the class and, you know, Vertigo. Rear Window, North by Northwest, Strangers on a Train, 39 Steps. You know, you're seeing all these really great movies, and uh, it's they all hold up. Yeah, absolutely. Except maybe, except maybe the birds. The birds, I don't know. I still don't know about that one. <laughs> yeah, it's funny, too, because The Birds is another one that I saw when I was younger, and I, I really enjoyed because it, it just really creeped me out. But 
as I started to get more familiar with the rest of his library, I, I agree with you, where maybe not the strongest one. Um, no, no, but that, that's one that my kids, I have a nine-year-old and 11-year-old, and that's the one, because it's on my bookshelf, and they're like, we're not watching that one. And I'm like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> Birds are scary. And, you know, I think that, you know, when, you know, when Hitchcock was talking about, you know, talking about the birds with Francois Truffaut in their famous 50-hour interview, uh, which eventually became the Hitchcock Truffaut book, which is fascinating if you, uh, and it's one of the source material I use for the class, but, you know, Hitchcock said he wanted to do something that was more than just a monster movie. Uh, and what basically happened, though, is it's a monster movie. So... <laughs> uh, just the way it ended up being, because it's, it's nothing but you know, but uh, pop outs and shock scenes, and the story itself is you know relatively thin. And then there's Tippy Hedren's performance, which is rapid to be kind. <laughs> Absolutely, and, and also the fact that the the birds, there is no explanation for anything that they're doing. To me, that is sort of right. like a monster movie where the monster just appears. Sort of like, I mean, the only thing I can sort of uh, compare it to. In, in contemporary film is like Cloverfield where the monster just shows up, destroys the city, right. and that's it. And that's sort of what the birds do in that movie. Yeah, and, and, and I think that, you know, for that filmmaking time, for that time, you know, you've got a movie like, a monster movie like Godzilla that has this, you know, underlying uh, subtext about the danger of radioactivity, the, da the danger of the atomic bomb. And that is what caused Godzilla to come to life. But you don't have anything. And you could certainly now, I think, if someone were to remake the birds, I think that I would say it would be about the environment and man's destruction of the environment leading to this thing happening. But nobody's going to remake the birds because you can't because there's a movie called The Birds and it was done by Alfred Hitchcock. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. I, I can agree with that. Um, so going through, like you said, your class sort of goes through the entire filmography and you're very familiar with his work. But what's... What's one, if you had to pick one, that you would say is your favorite? Oh, Rear Window, definitely. Uh, just the idea. There's so many so many pieces of that movie. All the things that come together from a technical standpoint, you know, the idea that, you know, it's a camera in one room. And you're learning about all of these different so stories from him peering through the windows of you know, each of the, the, the people in the, in the apartment across the street and uh, that kind of voyeuristic uh, feeling that, that the movie has and the idea that suddenly he discovers this murder. And, I, I, you know, I'll be honest. I mean, uh, Jimmy Stewart is amazing. Grace Kelly is effervescent. You know, and then they've got the, you know, then there's, you know, there's the trademark humor that that uh, darker humor that Hitchcock brings to everything he does. Uh, I think the script is perfect. And the way it was executed, the fact that he had that entire apartment building built, instead of like going on location, means that you have complete control over everything. And that was Hitchcock's thing, was that he needed complete control over every aspect of film, from the costuming for Grace Kelly to Stewart's. Uh, casting Stewart is you know, what it was paramount to the success of that film for him, because he always felt that Jimmy Stewart was the epitome of him. Uh, if he were to be, a, uh, you know, a, a character in his films. And then, uh, he always said that Cary Grant was, uh, was the character he wished he could be <laughs> in his <laughs> film. So it's very much the everyman movie that really gets caught up 
in a situation where uh, he has no control and he's trying to do something. And that's a, a theme that goes on through all of Hitchcock's works. And it's just, it's a beautiful movie too, the way it's shot. And then the other piece is that, which is um, in, integral to uh, understanding the way Hitchcock worked is that editing was so important to the way that he made movies um, because he employed what was called and what is called the Kuleshov effect, which is basically how editing works is, you know, putting three images together. It's uh, the image of a man eating or a man being hungry and then a bowl of soup. And then it's the man again, and he looks like he's hungry. The reaction of what he sees, we as the audience kind of, I piece together. He looks hungry. He sees a bowl of soup. He looks hungry again. But we don't actually know he's hungry because he just is looking at the soup. We imply and we we sort of impart the idea that we think he's hungry because we see what he's looking at. We see soup, and then we see him looking at something, and it could be anything. So he used editing quite well to explain this voyeuristic piece to see what's inside his head, which is really the great thing is that a good filmmaker takes the audience and puts him, puts the audience directly into the story. And that's what Rear Window really does. Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, in, in something like Psycho, when you see um, Arbogast being stabbed and he, he falls down the steps, you're the audience watching it and you can't do anything. But in Rear Window, when you see James Stewart's character watching Grace Kelly from across the way as she's trying to get to the suspected murderer's um, apartment, you, you actually right. see him that he can't, that he's entirely helpless and all he can do is watch. And as the audience, it's, 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 it's a little more, to me, it was, it was more, it was more nerve wracking because you want that character who can possibly do something to jump up and do something, but he can't, he can't do anything. Can't do anything. Yeah. Yeah, when she has the ring on, she points at the ring, and you're like, oh, thank God. <laughs> and then suddenly he shows up, and you're like, oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'd have to say one of my favorites, and it's I, I had to watch it a few times, and I think every time I watch it, it really it just reminds me how great it is, is Notorious. Um, oh, yeah. And I think a lot of Hitchcock films have to, have to deal with, uh, have are dealing with obsession, and I think the the relationship between Cary Grant and Ingrid Bergman was one that I took anyway that was removed from obsession, um, which is kind of strange for Hitchcock's characters uh, to begin with. But uh, it was sort of to me it was like the most genuine, even though Cary Grant, you know, is sort of using Ingrid Bergman's character to get what he needs for the government. But you know, as soon as they fall in love, he he gets angry that she has to go through all of this. Um, yes. And, and also, I think the suspense is top notch, especially the scene with the wine bottles, um, the scene with the the crane shot that goes all the way down to Bergman's hand as she's holding the, the key. key. Um, it's it's right. absolutely fantastic. And the the final the final scene of that movie is so simple and it's so short, but it's so precise and effective. It's just terrifying when uh, Claude Rains' character is just being encircled by his group of uh, ex-Nazis and he understands his fate completely and the audience understands and not, there's no words being spoken. They're just standing around him and they accept him back into the house after he tries to escape. Um, that part for me just 
uh, took it over the edge to say this is for me his best movie. Oh yeah, no, he was great. Uh, you know, and you touched upon something I think that's also important is that Hitchcock was constantly pushing himself uh, technically. You know, uh, he was the first uh, filmmaker to have sound in British filmmaking. He was the first filmmaker that was able to introduce sound. Uh, and a lot of you, you mentioned the crane shot finding the key. You can go through every Hitchcock movie and find at least one daring technical piece that makes that film special. And, you know, it, it, ranging from the biplane scene in North by Northwest, uh, in, in the vertigo, the actual vertigo shot where the, in, where the, you know, the background goes, it, it's the dolly truck, the, the truck in and uh, dolly out piece. Um, you know, Arbogast falling down the stairs in Psycho. Uh, again, rear windows, it's, that's entirely technical, uh, all the aspects of that. But, you know, like a movie like Lifeboat, which only takes place uh, in one location. Uh, you know, and uh, so he always was doing something like that. You know, I think the epitome, if you want to talk about technical, is the movie Rope, in which he created the single-shot movie. I mean, at the time, it's like, I mean, nobody ever considered doing anything like that. And it's something now that a number of filmmakers play with uh, because they can actually make it a true single shot instead of having to break it up every 10 minutes because that's how long the 35-millimeter reels lasted uh, on Hitchcock's movie, uh, on Rope. And they had to make a seamless, hopefully seamless transition. But the idea that you're shooting on one set and the camera's always moving and there's no editing is crazy. Uh, in fact, he comes back later and says that he actually thought that Rope was a failed experiment because it went against everything he believed in for film because there was no editing. So you're not able to increase the audience's suspense uh, without that editing piece. Yeah, and I think for people listening, the the... the... For again, for contemporary film, I think the best example I can give to, to relate to that is Birdman, that won the Best Picture Academy Award, where it it gave the illusion of one single shot through the entire film, but you can't. I mean, if you look really hard, you could probably see where they had to splice and cut and everything. But you know, it is interesting that you say that that he he Hitchcock felt it was a failed experiment because, from my opinion anyway, there's been a lot of single take shots in film that last a long time, but very rarely is it given the impression over the entire film and Birdman to me was the is the nearest example where that has actually been successful oh I agree absolutely I mean and the thing about Birdman too is that the camera that they use to film that is a lighter camera you know Hitchcock couldn't ever go handheld because of the camera the camera's constantly locked down on a dolly moving you know forward and backward moving left to right uh, panning the camera, but the freedom that digital filmmaking provides us now is that you can do uh, a film like Birdman, and it's you know it's easy to go in for a close up, uh, you know, instead of having you know because you can just walk, right? You know, as opposed to we need to move the camera, this heavy camera, into position, and it also allows you you don't have to be just in one location, right? Absolutely, that freedom. You know, that freedom they had. I mean, to go be able to go outside, be able to stay inside, be able to groom your room. I mean, and, and absolutely, I mean, technically it's just amazing. I think it's one of the reasons why I won the Oscar because of that, that, that whole focus on it technically. 
So I kind of want to get into Alfred Hitchcock anyway and, you know, why he's so important to film and pop culture. And, and again, with my podcast, as I'm, I'm talking about sort of the films that these directors wanted to make, but for some reason never could. And different episodes have different themes and have different stories to them. But Alfred Hitchcock could, you know, go so many different ways just because of his story in, in film. But I think a lot of people recognize the name and they recognize his bigger films, but what sort of importance does he actually have to film or to popular culture that helped to, I guess, make him this sort of figure that everybody knows and that everybody can recognize? Well, there's a few different things that actually address that. Uh, Probably the biggest thing that really kind of sets that going is the 1950s in France, the new way, uh, the, the French new wave cinema. And one of the things about the new wave cinema is that they realized that the directors were making the films. And before the, before the French realized this, uh, it was assumed that producers made the movies. Producers were the actual filmmakers. And the director was someone who basically pointed the camera and told the actors when to act. And Hitchcock had such a distinctive style. He had specific themes that ran through most of his films. You know, Innocent Man on the Run is, the, is you know, the one that's, that's most prevalent. And, you know, the way that he filmed his movies using his technical expertise, pushing the bounds of the way that he would tell stories, they, the, the French basically came up with what is called the auteur theory, which is, to us, it says author. It's the, the, it's the theory that the director is the author of the film. And it's the reason why nowadays, whenever you see a movie, it says a film by in the beginning of the film, that's directly because of the auteur theory. Certainly a number of people, hundreds of people go into making a film. But one person in the beginning is credited as it's, it's their film. And that's what the auteur theory is. And the French New Wave critics, the film critics, because they were very vibrant, uh, you know, and think about it because you're basically spilling out of these you know, studio films, studio films. There was no real independent film movement. And France is coming out of World War II, and it was almost like, you know, there were no rules to the French filmmakers. And so the French New Wave, with Jean-Luc Guitard, was breathless, and that Truffaut came along. And so you've got these uh, different filmmakers starting to make different movies. And so as part of that, the French critics started looking back, and they said if there's one director that, ha- that has his own style, that has his own visual uh, impression, and a body of work, that's the important thing. He has a body of work that's distinctive. Alfred Hitchcock was that director. And because Hitchcock, through this system, Basically, people started to notice that he was a more than just a, a, the you know the guy who pushes the camera around. He became uh, he started getting some notoriety, and you know when you start having you know films like uh, like uh, Strangers on a Train was huge you know in the early fifties, and um, you know when you start going into Rear Window and North by Northwest, uh, Man Who Knew Too Much. These movies in the 50s kind of really led to he is a brand. He became a brand. Everyone knew who Alfred Hitchcock is. Everyone today knows who Alfred Hitchcock is, if you know anything about movies. He, if you recall, had his own TV show that ran for eight years. And 
this is a, a filmmaker, a director, not particularly attractive, uh, you know, but everyone knew him. He was dubbed the master of suspense. And they people knew that if they went to see an Alfred Hitchcock film or if they watched his television show, that they were in for a mystery, they were in for a suspenseful film, they were in for a thriller. And it wasn't a question about, you know, what is he going to give us? It, he was a brand. He created art that we all expected, just like a band, just like a musician, the same exact thing. So the television show really cranked up his popularity, which led to his movie success, and it fed upon each, you know, each, uh, each other. Um, you know, up until, you know, Psycho, which was, you know, the biggest horror movie, if you call it, you know, horror movie, you know, of all time at that point, and which he made millions and millions of dollars. In fact, he became the third largest shareholder of Universal Studios uh, when he traded in his, uh, his stock on, on Psycho and turned into stock for Universal Studios uh, because, uh, you know, his agent felt it was a good, good business move. Uh, so the, the, the uh, television growing, this idea about brand, and the fact that he was a director that everyone knew is one of the reasons why his work has continued uh, because the work is good. I mean, that these themes and this technical expertise, they're all in play. And so it, and his, from a filmmaker's standpoint, the fact that he planned out everything was his embracement of editing and working with, you know, the, uh, the top stars of the day. And, you know, his, his focus being that he storyboarded out the entire film as he had it on paper. And so because he knew how every edit was going to be, the ultimate director, the ultimate god, so to speak, of this world he's creating, that for him, sometimes the actual filming was boring because he had pre-planned out everything. And pre-planning out as a director, creating this world and having complete control of it, that's something that filmmakers look to as, as an inspiration, as a guide to the amount of care and time that you put into your artistic work uh, in advance especially will lead you to a, a greater piece of film than you were hoping for. Oh, I completely agree. And, and, you know, his, his influence has extended long beyond his own lifetime also, um, especially in with contemporary directors. Do you feel that, and there's, there's obviously there's some directors that have named Alfred Hitchcock as their own personal influence. Uh, but compared to Hitchcock uh, then have there been any con- uh, contemporary directors that have been able to, I guess, match or surpass his success or, or impact? Because, again, I know that you know Brian De Palma is a big one who who frequently cites Hitchcock as as a prime um, I'm sorry a, a prime influence of his, but I'd, he hasn't had quite the success that Hitchcock did. Are there any directors that you feel could uh, could make that claim? Oh, just a quick note about the the Palma is that if you actually watch most of his films, they are almost they feel like Hitchcock movies. It's not a question of him taking a film and using a style and creating a style on his own. They are they might as well be Xerox copies in tone and in look the the, the way that, that that Hitchcock works. And so the Palma is actually dismissed as a serious director because he slaved so so tightly you know, to what Hitchcock and the way that Hitchcock made films. I mean, I think you look at, like, bigger at auteur directors. I think if you look at, well, who are the filmmakers that if you can, if you, you know, you watch a scene and you automatically know who it is. If I said, watch this scene, tell me who you think the director is. I think you're going to get the the uh, Martin Scorsese's 
I think you're going to get the Steven Spielbergs. I think at this point you're going to get Christopher Nolan, who I think right now is the most influential filmmaker. Um, currently kind of contemporary Spielberg, uh, Spielberg and Scorsese are always there, but Nolan is the one that in my film production classes, I constantly point to because he's doing a, such original work. And, uh, and I, and also technically being able to do some amazing things as well. Uh, Guillermo del Toro, who specifically cite Hitchcock as one of his, as one of his influences. I mean, if you look at just the ideas of editing the way to move the camera, to engage, I think, to engage the audience, to build, be able to build suspense and knowing how to build suspense. I think those are all the pieces that Hitchcock was able to bring, and certainly those are the things that other filmmakers who are notable, who are authors, who are have – every filmmaker should have their own auteur sensibility. They should all have you know, their own thing that they do and, 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 and that are recognizable to the public. And I think that's what Hitchcock really the, the lesson that he gave them was directors can be influential, directors can be innovative, and they are have a platform to tell their story. And I think also for me for for the I guess continuing with similar themes of Hitchcock or, or sort of in his spirit, I guess, I would sort of say David Fincher, just because a lot of his characters have sort of these underlying sort of these these um these sort of dark things that are going on within them that are sort of revealed throughout the film uh and i know that uh Hitch- hitchcock was able to bring a lot of the things that he was afraid of and, and express that in his films uh, and since he never really got over a lot of those fears he was able to keep that as motivation to keep creating these moments in his movies um and he believed that all people were voyeurs whether they knew it or not and like you said it's evidenced in rear window where he makes the audience uh, voyeuristic and I think David Fincher is actually quoted as saying as well his philosophy or whatever you want to call it is that all all people are perverts and that's also apparent in his movies and I the most recent example I can think of is um, Gone Girl with um, the two main characters seemingly have this this perfect storybook marriage and and um, engagement sort of dating session whatever you want to call it they have this relationship that's that's everybody strives to to earn but then you find out that they're kind of bad people underneath any everything that's going on um, and it slowly becomes apparent and I think also it, it specifically in the movie there's uh, a scene that just had me at the edge of my seat biting my nails anything you want to use to describe suspense for and and that's kind of how I feel that that's what directors sort of strive for when they want that suspenseful moment or they, when they want to recreate a, a Hitchcock moment. I can, I see that happening in, in his movies, most notably that one. You know, the, uh, the I'm going to politely disagree with you actually, Nathan, okay. because I feel like Fincher, Fincher actually is Stanley Kubrick reincarnated. Okay. Because Kubrick, and actually if you watch a lot of the shot selections that Kubrick did for many films, it's actually Fincher's, Fincher's framing is similar in the in, in regards to like eyeline, uh, like where the eye, you know, where the what the, the the actual frame is composed. He does a lot of wider shots, and you know when you think about a movie, even a, a recent movie like there's like Eyes Wide Shut or something, there was that complex characterization that you that you're that you're talking about. Furthermore, with um, you know Fincher is famous now for doing multiple takes, like an excessive mm-hmm. amount of multiple takes. 
uh, there's a, a uh, Jesse Eisenberg in Social Network was crossing Harvard Square and uh, in the shot. I think it's near the it's in the beginning of the movie. And Fincher made him do it 60 times. Oh, wow. 60, 60 takes. And then I throw you to Kubrick, who in The Shining, there's a scene where Scatman Crothers, the maintenance man, is beaten to death by Jack because, uh, you know, because he's crazy. They did that 30, I think 32 times, him being beaten over the head. And finally, the first assistant directors told Kubrick, we have to stop because <laughs> he needs a doctor. Yes. And that was the only reason why Kubrick quit because because they were such perfectionists. And Fincher's the same way. Yeah. See, I mean, I think definitely from a suspense standpoint, you know, the thing about Hitchcock that you have to remember though is the idea of the MacGuffin. You remember the MacGuffin? Yep, absolutely. It it's something that we know about that the characters know about, but we don't necessarily know what it is. And I think that you get a real sense from Hitchcock's films is that he felt that suspense was not only the, the idea of the MacGuffin being something that we are aware of, but don't know exactly what it is, but there's also the idea of, do you remember uh, in class we talk about the baseball game, the two men sitting at a baseball game, and or sitting at, they're sitting at a, in a restaurant talking about baseball. And unbeknownst, suddenly they're talking about baseball, there's a game last night, and suddenly, boom, there is an explosion. Apparently there was a bomb hidden under the table. In Hitchcock's world, he starts on the bomb and then goes to the men sitting above the bomb talking about baseball. And all the audience members are like, guys, there's a bomb under the table. Why are you talking about baseball? <laughs> you need to run. And then the bomb explodes and they die. So that so that's the difference because when you're talking about, you know, it's like, you know, it's the idea about the pop-up in, in, in horror movies right. where suddenly someone pops in a frame and it's a, it's a start, so you get startled, as opposed to you know this is going to happen. The audience is in on it. And the suspense now is the audience – the helpless audience saying, you did it, guys, leave, leave. That's the suspense that Hitchcock focused on. And it's and, it, and it's different from what a lot of people do. A lot of it is just straight filmmaking. But his focus, his goal always was to bring the audience in. And it wasn't a question of the mystery of what was happening. He was he was happy to, to, to you know, let the audience know what was, what was in on it. It's the characters who don't know what's going on. Yeah, and I... I that example was always one of my favorite examples of, of how to create a scare versus suspense. Uh, because again, watching modern horror movies, they're all sort of that jump scare. Like you said, it's always that bomb going off. You don't really get a lot of that. This is coming and the audience is aware and that's what draws them out. But like you said, I think Hitchcock really enjoyed orchestrating that in his movies and prolonging that where you want the audience to be, to, to notice that and you want them to be, sort of edgy that entire time versus that three seconds of jump scare that that wasn't didn't seem like that was as much of a payoff to him as it was for that long suspense i agree um so going into now into the 60s where he's or alfred hitchcock has his probably his most successful uh run of his career with north by northwest uh, vertigo psycho 
and then the birds afterwards he made marnie so Truffaut suggests that hitchcock films after marnie suffered because he had allowed more studio intervention than he normally did and that Truffaut was also convinced that Hitchcock himself was not satisfied with any of his films after Psycho. And again, this is just Hitchcock, or this is just Truffaut's um, sort of his perception of things just from interviewing the director and watching his films. But I wanted to get your thoughts to see if, if you agree with that or if you see any evidence of Hitchcock just not being satisfied with any of his movies after, you know, post Psycho. You know, that's a very interesting question. And I am going to come out, and I don't want to sound like I'm a, you know, I'm a hater. Because I think after Psycho uh, and going into uh, The Birds, I feel, like, I feel like Hitchcock started to lose his perspective. And what I mean by that is, you know, he'd had these obsessions with his actresses, Grace Kelly, Ingrid Bergman, all through his life. Uh, unattainable women and uh, the obsessions I mean which culminates in vertigo which is about a you know a man who tries to turn a woman into <laughs> his dream girl right uh, you know is that you know what when when Tippi Hedrick came in and he's you know he's in his 60s at this point um, I feel like his what he was trying to do in film I was merely working out I think the the contracts I mean especially if you look I mean because the birds for him it was a it was a that, that movie was a financial bomb and uh, I think once once after the the hit of psycho and then suddenly coming into this movie with the birds starring an actress that he had created and she wasn't very good and he's trying to find another vehicle for her because he wants her to be with him. You know, and I know that I, I hope I'm not creeping anybody out here. <laughs> but if you start looking at, like, if you look at a movie like, you know, Psycho, which really pushed the bounds on what a horror suspense film would be. The Birds is, again, is, you know, a monster film. Marnie the subject matter of Marnie is very disturbing. You know, she's a kleptomaniac uh, who has been sexually, psychosexually traumatized through her life. And Sean Connery is a psychiatrist or psychologist, one of those two. And he ends up raping her in the movie. And for me, and then somehow is able to work out her issues with her daddy complex or whatever it was. And I feel like suddenly now he was focusing on these more, you know, it's a rape scene. There's no, there's no rape scenes in any of the other 45 movies that had come before that. And I think that he was using, honestly, the cultural, the way that culture was changing and being more permissive regarding sex and violence. And he was trying to push that himself artistically. But I think that he personally couldn't wrap himself around embracing that type of cultural film shift. And so, you know, uh, Topaz was a, yeah, that was a, that was a huge mistake, you know, overall, because he, um, you know, didn't really uh, want to make that film. He was forced to make that film, you know, torn curtain uh, when he did torn curtain with, with uh, Paul Newman and Julie Andrews, 
We didn't want Paul Newman in that movie. And the only reason he really made that film was because of the really great scene when in the, um, in the, the shack, when there's no sound, no music, it's just like the breathing when, uh, when, uh, you know, Paul Newman is attacked in the kitchen when it's a knife scene and there's, you know, there's no dialogue that, that kind of thing I think still was, was, uh, was appealing to him. Um, you know, Topaz was a nightmare and then, you know, when you get to family plot, well, family plot's like frenzy. If you look at frenzy as a film, which everyone said, well, it's harkening back to, you know, early Hitchcock. Well, you know, it's a serial killer. There's a rape scene in which the killer, the debonair, the, 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 the charming killer is raping women in the nude which is something that Hitchcock could never do in the past. You know, nude women, rape. I mean, this is a whole other jump, I think, artistically for him that he wanted to do from an emotional, visceral level. But I don't think he physically had the mental capacity to be able to do that. And that's kind of where I think that you were talking about, want to talk about Kaleidoscope. It fits in with this idea. Right, because, excuse me, Kaleidoscope, from what I understand from Hitchcock Truffaut, that's... Uh, when I first heard about this movie, it was kind of mentioned in, in there that Hitchcock sent a letter to Truffaut saying he was planning this movie. And it just seemed to me that uh, Hitchcock was sort of, like you said, at this point, trying to grasp the culture that was around him versus creating it, I guess, where he was sort of taking from the French New Wave and from these ideas that came this that, that sprouted from him. Uh, versus the other way around where people were taking ideas from him. And this film, Kaleidoscope, which it's hard to comment on since, of course, it doesn't exist and there's no screenplay, um, it seemed like it wouldn't have had a strong, as strong connection to the audience because it's sort of like, you know, with with movies of that time that were so radical, like Bonnie and Clyde or The Graduate, they were just so iconic. Um, it seemed like you know, those are, those films didn't lecture their audiences, you know, they didn't hammer traditional values or, or, you know, help them express themselves through, it helped younger audience express themselves through these movies. And I think that that seemed to be what Alfred Hitchcock was trying to, that, that's the audience that he was going to make this movie for. And I don't think they were really, would have been into this movie, which Kaleidoscope, which was very similar to Frenzy, which was a very good looking serial killer slash uh, rapist. And I think that it would have been sort of, unfortunately, it would have been like having like your grandfather telling you what it's like in the current time, I guess, if that's a, if that's a jumbo right. way to put it. Um, but, you know, this movie was planned when, you know, Alfred Hitchcock was sort of on his decline. So, and a lot of the ideas were sort of used in Frenzy or sort of some of the themes, but like you said, you you don't think he may, he may have been in that creative capacity to tackle the movie at the time, but do you think that he could have created this movie? And do you think it could have been as successful as, you know, like maybe even like Frenzy, how you said Frenzy was considered not necessarily a comeback, but it, it reminded people of classic Hitchcock. Yeah, um, I agree. I agree with you. I think that I think Frenzy definitely is sort of like he kind of went back to his because he went back to Britain, I think, was the thing that made that film special for him. He and Alma Hitchcock both went back to Britain. They were back there. That was where they were born. 
that's where his film career started. And I think that you get that permeation of that's the kind of filming that he did. I mean, there's still, there's some very lurid and brutal things in Frenzy. But then you have a scene like in the potato truck with the, um, you know, with the, uh, the tie class, which is this like pure, you know, pure cinema, which is what Hitchcock was all about, this term pure cinema, where you didn't need words to tell a story. It was all visual. North by Northwest biplane scene is probably the most famous of that. Um, and that, and the, 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 the Paul Newman fight in Torn Curtain, there's a number of different uh, examples of that pure cinema that he always believed in. But I think that, you know, looking at Kaleidoscope, it's that, brut- there's that brut- brutality and luridness that I think Hitchcock thought that was what the counterculture was about. It was about nudity and it was about being brutal. And I think he mistook what that was. And then, you know, and Truffaut had concerns about the way that Kaleidoscope was going to be done. He felt that, he said, he said that uh, he knew that Hitch would be able to shoot it in a tasteful and artistic manner. But the overall, the overall content, he had a concern with. And then if you go through, and I don't know if you're, you know, showing uh, everyone the, uh, like the, the, the stills, the images of it, if you're including that on your video website, it's naked women. It's all the women are naked. They're all topless. Right, all of them. And there's even shots where all of them. there's some of them are like full nude and there's a uh, the killer is standing there oh. in in pants. Right. <laughs> I mean, it, you know, I mean, I think that's really, you know, I mean, I think is it I don't hate I don't want to say he was at this point kind of a dirty old man. But if you're a director and you can it's permissive to be able to do that, why wouldn't you? Exactly. I'm tarnishing the entire legacy of the greatest <laughs> filmmaker in history by turning him into a lurid, dirty old man. But I'll tell you, if you want to, if you're a Hitchcock fan, Nathan, I don't know if you've seen The Girl, the HBO movie The Girl starring Toby Jones. You know, that's something that I have. It's been on my HBO queue for the longest time, but I I just can't bring myself to watch it just because um, I watched the uh, – actually, we, we went to the screening of the uh, Hitchcock movie starring uh, Anthony Hopkins and um, Helen, Helen Mirren. Yeah. And while I enjoyed it, I felt that I was – you know, I, I think I was looking for – I had just finished your class, so I was, I was looking for all that realism and that documentary style, and it wasn't there. So I was – I enjoyed it, but it wasn't what I was looking for. So I just figured nothing is going to – I guess, uh, fulfill me the way that the class did. So I stayed away from that movie, but, um, you're saying I should, uh, I should check that out though. I'm saying that if you want to see Hitchcock at his sleaziness, you go watch the girl because it's all about how he took uh tippy and turned her from a, you know, a soap soap commercial actress. And it was purely because he was so infatuated with her. And the worst scene, I'm giving it away for you, is when he actually tries to make some move on her. <laughs> and, and it is the most awkward thing you've ever seen. And, you know, even in the, in, even in the Hitchcock movie with, uh, with Anthony Hopkins, you know, there's, he's got the little peephole so he can watch Vera Miles get dressed. Remember? Yeah, and they recreate that scene from Psycho. And that, that was like... I think I remember. I think if I remember in the audience, there was a few light chuckles, but then afterwards, the scene kept going and ev- everyone got silent. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. 
So, I mean, you know, I mean, I think, I think that you can kind of wrap all this because you, everyone thinks of film directors as like, there's the, you know, and Hitchcock came off as so stoic, you know, and so sure of himself. But remember at the end of the day, he is an artist and as an artist, you put yourself out there emotionally. You put your soul out there. You put everything you have creatively into your work. So much so, I think that we all have foibles. We all have mistakes. We're not perfect. And that's, this is an example. It, it's a big deal because it's Hitchcock. But who hasn't ever had fantasies about girls, you know, or hasn't ever wanted to, you know, control a woman, if you're a man, control a woman, you know, into wearing everything that you wear, everything I tell you to do, you do everything that I say. And I think with Tippy, it was the first time that he could do that because, you know, Grace Kelly wouldn't let him pull that. Ingrid Bergman never let him do that. Um, you know, and that's when he was young and, 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 you know, he's still a little bigger than. All right, he, he had a weight problem. I'm sure we all know that as well. But he's not perfect, but we want him to be perfect because to us, the world of film is perfect. And he's one of those directors that after the birds, he saw the birds not doing well, and he saw the material that was coming out. I said, I wish he would have stopped. I wish he would have recognized that he had done the best work he could and stepped away, but he couldn't because filmmaking is like heroin. Actually, Scorsese says, uh, I've never tried heroin, but making films is a thousand times more addictive. <laughs> and, he, and he could never get away. Hitchcock couldn't. He always had to be making a movie. And I, for a long time, said that filmmakers who are over 70 should not be making films. And then Clint Eastwood comes along and makes a movie like Unforgiven and then American Sniper. And it's like, wow. He's a filmmaker. I mean, I don't necessarily, I, he, you could say he's an auteur. He's certainly been doing, I couldn't pick a, a Clint Eastwood movie out. If you showed me three scenes, I couldn't say what Clint Eastwood is. But he's still productive right now. He's making very, very good movies. So he's the, uh, he's the, uh, the exception to my rule. But I think, you know, after, after you hit 60, I, I worry about you. You have to be an extraordinary filmmaker to be able to, uh, to continue in, in, at a level that, uh, that audiences expect from you. Absolutely. And and with, you know, like I said, I, you, I couldn't pick a frame of a, a Clint Eastwood movie unless he's in it because a lot of his movies he's in. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, I agree with you. I, I, I agree with that 100 percent. And I think, you know, with my with this uh, podcast series I'm doing, I find these movies that directors didn't get, get to make or filmmakers or, or producers, anybody. And I there's always a question behind it. And it's not always why they couldn't make it or why they didn't make it sort of like you know, like, like Kaleidoscope, where we kind of have our answer. But with this movie, with Kaleidoscope and Alfred Hitchcock, my question to myself was, why is this movie even important? Because Alfred Hitchcock had a lot of movies that he planned and never made. And, and there's, um, especially in the book Hitchcock Truffaut, Truffaut talks about all these movies that Hitchcock just tells him, like, I was planning this, or I wrote this, and I didn't want to do it. He's got all these movies that he, he planned to do, and he didn't make. So, why, to me, I was trying to figure out why is this one so important? And I think, like you said, it's because when he tried to make this movie, it was so much, it was so very much against what he had done in the past. And, and it almost seemed like he was 
fighting to do something so radically different from his own film catalog it just it just couldn't work out and like you said it just came so late in his career that it, it this was a task that i wonder if he ever knew was was never going to be produced and he you know he even reached out to some of his uh from what i understand from my research he reached out to some of his past collaborators like robert block the writer of of psycho the the of the novel and you know at that point he just wanted so much money that Alfred Hitchcock thought it was too much work to deal with him. So he let him go and, and reached out to another writer. But, you know, th- there was all these odds against him to make this film. And I just think that I, I can't, you know, of course, I can't comment and speak for him. But I don't know if he could have ever really thought that it was going to be produced. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the studio at, at Universal Studios, you know, they, they, Lou Wasserman basically felt that it was just too uncommercial. You know, it's just like, oh my gosh, I can't remember the film, but when um, uh, Hitchcock was trying to get Grace Kelly back, and he had this movie, oh gosh, and the the idea behind the film was Grace Kelly was going to be raped, right? And the, and Monaco, the pre the Prince of Monaco, basically said that is not the kind of film that our princess will ever do. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> and. And don't tell me that there isn't some part of Hitchcock himself who wouldn't have wanted to watch Grace Kelly, the woman that he loved, who left him, watch her get raped. Because he's, there's some, you know, he's got some issues. And that's a terrible thing to say. <laughs> but no, yeah, I, I get you that he was very, he, he had a lot of hostility towards actresses that didn't want to work with him anymore like you said and when ingrid bergman left him for uh roberto uh i'm sorry i i forgot his name for some reason um rosalini it, it was roberto rosalini right uh oh uh, oh you're talking about oh roberto uh, you're talking about um ingrid bergman now sorry. yeah roberto rosalini yes. isabella rosalini's father um yeah her uh Who's married ingrid bergman ingrid yeah Ingrid Bergman was married to Roberto Rossellini, and then they their daughter was, was yes. uh, yeah uh, Isabella. Yep. And then, but when she left him, uh, he took that very personal, and he was very you know he he kind of was kind of hostile to her for the rest of her life, and she comments on that as well in, in the book. Oh yeah, and, and Tippy even Tippy Hedren when Tippy left him, it was I made her into a star. How dare she? You know, and he felt, I think he felt the same about all his women, you know, that he had done so much for them. How dare they leave? Because they, I mean, they made some movies together, Ingrid Bergman and, and Grace Kelly with him. Big films. But, you know, he was so, uh, he's such a control freak, you know, and women were the one things he could never control. And that is frustrating, I think, to anyone who is a control freak. Right. Especially if that is seemingly what his other than film his lifelong goal yeah and the amazing thing about this whole thing to me is the patience and understanding of alma hitchcock to put up with her husband's idiosyncrasies and obsessions and you saw that you did see the hitchcock film yep with helen mirren she's the hero of that movie she saves that production Remember, Hitch didn't want. Hitch was mad at Bernard Herrmann and didn't want to use the all stri- the, the the music in the shower scene. 
she's like, Hitch, you have to use that. <laughs> and she's in the editing room saying, oh, that's too, we need to change that, cut that. You know? She knows he's never going to get to act on any of his fantasies, but she walks into his office and she sees the stack of, of blonde, you know, headshots. Yeah. <laughs> but still, she loved, still she loves him. And I, uh... And I think, so they say that behind every good man is a great woman. And in that case, I believe it's real. She's in for his entire career. I, I completely agree with you. And I, I tried to uh, keep that to a minimum during my program because I, that was one of the most delightful things that I learned in your course. And I don't and I don't want to take anything away from that or I, I don't want to focus on that on, on, my, on my program because it's very important to learn. And I think it is it, – it's – very important she was very important to his career and i think that's part of why that hitchcock movie wasn't again sort of disappointed me a little just because i i sort of felt like it should have been her movie like he's got his legacy and he everyone knows him already but not a lot of people know that alma hitchcock did a lot of work with him in 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 conjunction with all his films she helped write uh everything um she like you said she made a lot of the bigger choices and helped him make these choices and she's not mentioned nearly enough as Alfred Hitchcock is and I again I think that's something that I learned in the course that I would have never known if I hadn't taken it and I I think that's something that is important yeah it's uh I mean it she definitely kept him on on track which is great you know together they made some amazing cinema yeah and collide I mean if you look at kaleidoscope and what kaleidoscope is all about it basically is frenzy you know it's frenzy uh, you know, good-looking man lures women and kills them, strangles them to death. That's what kaleidoscope is supposed to be. That's what frenzy ends up being. And that's what I'm seeing in a lot of my research that I'm doing. A lot of these films that were never completed by different filmmakers, a lot of some of their concepts or themes or imagery have been recycled into other movies. So I guess if if anyone is curious to see what kaleidoscope could have been. Um, you can check out Frenzy, and, and it's got a lot of the elements, but it's nowhere. I don't think it's anywhere near the the the, the I guess sort of the dramatic story or imagery that would have been that would have ended up in Kaleidoscope. Well, it certainly didn't have enough naked women, I think, <laughs> in what Kaleidoscope. Because I'm seeing like three or four different women, naked women, top, topless and bottomless. Yeah. Are you kidding me? <laughs> you know. It's Alfred Hitchcock, okay? You're not some weird kid in Italy. Exactly. Yeah, and it, it's not some <laughs> experimental film filmmaker or just getting in and not knowing how to tell a story. It's This is Alfred Hitchcock. He's influenced just a sea of directors, and he's just his, his, test, his test shots for this movie were just women topless and some of just not yeah. even talking, no dialogue or anything. No dialogue. I mean, Hitchcock regardless of this or regardless of you know his decline he is still the greatest filmmaker in the history of motion pictures and i don't think anybody can take anything away from that and the fact that he was so successful and then the irony that he never won a best director oscar was because they were jealous the academy was jealous of his success they were jealous of the fact that he was bigger than some stars and you know, his legacy will continue and live forever. You know, if we have this conversation, probably would be like some sort of mental telepathy thing that would be recorded on some sort of cloud. A um, hundred years from now, it's the same thing. People are going to look back at these these films 
and it's amazing to me the response, and I really appreciate you you know, asking me to be on the on, on your program, Nathan. Is that the response that I get from students who go through the Hitchcock class are like, I've learned so much about filmmaking. I had no idea everything that he did, and it just it's. I think this is what a college film class is really about. Is about learning about something that you maybe have heard of before, but then getting the opportunity to really sink your teeth into a subject that you had an interest in, and and a whole new world opens up. I absolutely agree, and I think that's a great place for us to to end our conversation today. Um, I do want to thank you very, very much for coming on and joining me uh, and taking time out of your schedule. Again, I know you've got a lot going on, but to take a moment to speak with me about uh, something that I care about a lot and I know something you care about a lot, which is movies, is just it, it does mean a lot to me, so I, I can't thank you enough, and I, I do appreciate your time very much. Oh, uh, listen, anytime, you know. Uh, I, I, you know, I'm also a big comedy film person. I teach great comedy films over at ASU as well. So if you ever have a good comedy, feel free to give me a call. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Mr. Lamont mentioned Alma Reville, who was Alfred Hitchcock's wife and also his professional partner. And while we didn't get the opportunity to discuss her career in detail, I would be remiss to not mention that Reville had a tremendous contribution to the history of film in her collaboration with Hitchcock. Hitchcock heavily relied on Reville's professional opinion and often made imperative decisions based on her counsel. Her work as a consultant, editor, screenwriter, assistant director, and much more are of great importance, and I encourage everyone listening to seek out more about her work as a filmmaker. And I must agree with Chris Lamont, Alfred Hitchcock truly is the greatest filmmaker of all time. And even though he had already created some of the finest films to even grace the silver screen, perhaps Hitchcock had reached a point in his life where he was no longer capable of creating a picture as engaging and provocative as before. Hitchcock was a man who took his lifelong fears and turned them into great art. But perhaps one fear was too much for him to conquer. As the filmmaker once said, quote, I am scared easily. Here is a list of my adrenaline production. One, small children. Two, policemen. Three, high places. And four, that my next movie will not be as good as the last one, end quote. Thank you for listening please take a minute to write a review of our podcast on iTunes and be sure to follow us on Twitter at Movies Never Made and like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Movies Never Made. <laughs>